Uh, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers as they come down the aisle. They'll be certain to get one in your hands. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. While they're distributing those Bibles, if this is your first time with us, my name is Rob Willie. I serve as the senior pastor here at Cormdale Bible Church. And on behalf of all of us who call this home, we're so thankful that you are here, that you've chosen to join us on this particular morning. Uh, for those of you who are joining us online, whether near or afar, we're thankful for that as well. And if you're near, we trust that you'll be able to join us in person. I guarantee it's always, always better together. All right, Revelation 19, we've come to the final event of the Great Tribulation and the final event of the age, the age in which we live. None other than the heroic salvation of planet Earth by Bruce Willis. <laughs> for love, for honor, for mankind. I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. Because that's how most people think of Armageddon, right there. Asteroids, popcorn, and warm fuzzies. Doesn't get much better. 1988, I think, or 98, something like 98, all right. That's how most people think of Armageddon. But the Bible paints a very different picture. A very different picture. The Bible describes a battle, and an epic one at that. A battle between those who oppose God and those who follow him. A battle fought and won by none other than Jesus himself. Fought and won on our behalf by the King of Kings who we worship and I trust you long for. And rest assured, if you don't long for him now, should the events of the Great Tribulation begin to unfold in our lifetime, you will certainly long for him then. And long for him to win the victory. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Those words will never be more precious and more true than at the battle of Armageddon. And let me just say from the top, if your view of Jesus is confined, is confined to a benevolent genie, you know, you, you rub his lamp, whatever you need him, and he gives you everything that you want. If your view of Jesus is confined to, to that, or it's confined to a tender grandfather father full of love and mercy, and only love and mercy, your world is about to be rocked. Because he's also just, Jesus is. He's also stern. He's also firm. He's also full of wrath and the instrument of God's wrath to judge the world. True. Not the kind of stuff you talk about in Sunday school. Especially his wrath at Armageddon. Because it's graphic, it's brutal, and it's uncomfortable. 
And if you limit your view of Jesus to everything but that, you know, only to the niceties, only the blessings, you'll either miss him altogether or you'll make an idol of him that's powerless. Powerless at Armageddon, powerless in the world, and even powerless in your life. If you make an idol of Jesus that's only partially true of him and not fully true of him, you'll make an idol that's powerless in your life because he'll never discipline you, he'll never rebuke you, and he'll never correct you. He'll never turn your life from being three degrees off to being true north or 30 degrees off to being spot on or 180 degrees from following him. When I was a kid, one of my grandmas had a painting in her house. Maybe this will ring a bell for some of you. She had a painting in, your, in her house at the end of the short hallway that led to the bedrooms and, and to the guest bedroom and where we stayed. And, and that painting was a painting of Jesus. And it was one of those old frames. Maybe you've seen them, an elaborate frame, kind of dark hues to the, to, the, to the painting. And there was this little light that kind of slumped over it that, that shone on the picture. You, you know what I'm picturing? Some of you. It's this little light that kind of slumped over it. And it, and it cast this painting with a, a soft glow on the countenance of Jesus. So gentle, so loving, so kind. You, you know, the, the kind of guy who just pats you on the head and says, they're there, it's okay. No matter what you do, or no, no matter what's going on in life, no matter what's going on around the world, it's just, they're there, it's okay. And while that's true to some extent, it's not the full picture. Not even close. The full picture includes his wrath. The full picture includes his power, his vengeance, something that I've never seen in a house. Because that defies our sensibilities. You know, the, the powerful Jesus, the Jesus full of the wrath of God, like th that's contrary to our desires. And it results in an idol who suits us but not him. If that's you, let the word of God speak this week and in subsequent weeks. Let the Bible speak. See Jesus for who he is and how he is because a day is coming when there will be no more denying it. No more. And if you're on the wrong side of things, because you've been worshiping an idol all along, it's going to be too late on that day. You follow along with me, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. I'm going to read it through. We'll begin to unpack it. It's going to take us several weeks to do so, because as I hope you see before we're done today, there's so much here. The Apostle John continues to write, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, key word, key word, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, 
and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, a, a position of prominence, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Pretty graphic, isn't it? Uncomfortably so. An apocalyptic event if there ever was one. But it's not the first time we've run into it. It's first mentioned back in Revelation 16. Remember when the sixth angel pours out his bowl of wrath and the demonic spirits, the demonic spirits go abroad to the kings of the whole world, it says, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. On the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them, it says, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon. Same description as Revelation 19. A battle with the kings of the earth gathered to make war against Jesus and his followers. Same description. Same description. Hence, the battle of Armageddon. What chapter 16 labels in one short verse with very brief description, what chapter 16 labels, chapter 19 describes and leads us to the first point. It's a real battle in real places. The battle of Armageddon is a real battle in real places with real people. At the end of the Great Tribulation, we've talked about this many times, opposition to God and the church is going to peak. Satan and his lackeys will stir the pot, world leaders will jump on the bandwagon, and hostility will abound. Hostility leading to persecution, opposition, 
struggle, in addition to all the natural struggles that will befall, there will be persecution from the world opposing the church and hating God. Until finally, those kings of the earth and their armies will take up arms against us. Literally. Verse 19, look at it there again. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies. Armies, by definition, are armed. Armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's us. Us. A real battle in real places with real people. The description is too explicit and too extensive to spiritualize it, I think, as some people are wont to do. It's saying that this is imagery, which we all would agree with. It's apocalyptic imagery. But, but they would say it's because it's apocalyptic imagery, it's not real. That would be like saying that the return of Jesus, because it's described, he's described on a white horse coming from heaven, isn't real. It's somehow spiritualized. No, no, no. I think the description is too explicit and too extensive here to spiritualize it, resulting in a real battle at real places with real people. And John says it's going to go down at a place called Armageddon. A Hebrew word, as I've explained before, that means mount, Megiddo, that's what the word means. Mount Megiddo, Armageddon. And it seems pretty straightforward. Except there is no such place. There was a city named Megiddo, Megiddo, in the plains of northern Israel, but no such place as Mount Megiddo. Nor is the area around Megiddo large enough to accommodate a clash of the world's armies or an assembly of the world's armies. But Megiddo was the place in biblical history where ancient Israel often fought its enemies. It was the place where they often came together, not the only place, but often the place where the armies of Israel came together to fight the armies of the opposition at that time, localized as it was. And so I think that John cites Armageddon, Megiddo here, calling it Mount Megiddo, he cites it as a symbol of that, a symbol of the final showdown, a symbol of the ultimate battle, a symbol of the, the ultimate war that will take place, epic as it is at the end of the age. A battle that will go down on a global scale because it describes the kings of the earth bringing their armies together. It's going to be the world against the church, a real battle in real places on a global scale involving real people. That's the first point regarding the battle of Armageddon that you need to know. Second, it starts, the battle of Armageddon does, with the return of Christ. It's a real battle in real places and it starts with the return of Jesus himself. It's the last event of the Great Tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon is, the last event, very last event of the Great Tribulation that starts when Jesus returns, when he comes from heaven to earth. Just like it says in verse 11, check it out there. I saw heaven opened, heaven opened, with Jesus on a white horse making war. 
Not war in the heavens, but this time war against the armies of the earth, verse 19. In verse 11, Jesus comes from heaven to make war, verse 19, against the armies of the earth that are assembled to fight him. So the battle of Armageddon starts with the return of Christ, his second coming. No Jesus, no battle. And praise the Lord for that because we would lose without him. No Jesus, no battle. Even clearer is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 8 where the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. There's that word again, righteous. Everything God does through Christ, everything is righteous, including what he's going to do at the battle of Armageddon, brutal and graphic and explicit as it is, righteous. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, comes again, with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That is, those who don't repent and believe, obey the gospel. When Jesus comes again, bottom line, it spells doom for those still alive and still rejecting him. Doom. Because he's going to inflict vengeance, it says. You see it there? Vengeance. Vengeance on those who don't know him and those who don't want to. Vengeance that John describes in Revelation 19 at the battle of Armageddon. It starts with the return of Christ. Jesus will descend from heaven he will gather the saints in the air and then come to earth to make war on sinners. That's the cliff note vision, uh, version here. Jesus will descend from heaven, gather the saints, and immediately come to earth to make war on sinners. Just like it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, given, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, given new glorified bodies, just like that of Jesus after his resurrection. Jesus is going to descend from heaven, voice of an archangel, cry of command, sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will be given new glorified bodies raised from the grave. Then, verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, with glorified bodies of our own. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will be raptured to meet him in the air and immediately return with him to earth because that's what the word meet means in Greek, the original language of the New Testament. It means to connect with, means to go out and connect with and immediately return with. 
used not only in the scripture this way, but used in extra biblical Greek literature of the day in the first century to describe people who would go out of the city to meet a returning king and he go immediately back to the city, usher him back into the city. We even find it in the book of Acts where Paul was approaching Rome. The believers went out to meet him, same word, and ushered him back into the city. Put that together with Revelation 19. And the reason Jesus proceeds to earth with us in tow is to fight the battle of Armageddon. It starts with the return of Christ. Jesus is going to descend from heaven. Cry of command. He's going to raise those who are dead in Christ, the saints, those who believed in Jesus as they walked the face of this earth. He's going to raise the dead in Christ, give them new glorified bodies, change those saints who are still living at the time in the twinkling of an eye to give them new glorified bodies, gather us in the air to meet him, and then immediately return with him to fight the battle of Armageddon. And it's all going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. He's going to come and raise and then judge in one fell swoop. That's as much as we know. If you're thinking, well, how fast is that one fell swoop? Fast. Fast. So whatever you do, be ready. Be ready. Starting now. Because if you wait till then, it's too late. Obey the gospel as Paul says it in 2 Thessalonians 1, obey the gospel and be ready now. Submit to God and be ready today. Hold fast and be ready always. Because when the battle starts, it's too late. Too late to switch sides. It's the second truth regarding the battle of Armageddon that you need to know. Third, it's the ultimate day of the Lord in Scripture. The battle of Armageddon is the ultimate day of the Lord in Scripture. Maybe you've seen that as you've read your Bible. Hopefully you do see that as you read your Bible. It's not just a few places in the Bible. It's a lot of places in the Bible. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. In fact, it's so often you might get a little bit immune to it and callous to it and not think much of it. It's a phrase used over and over again in the Bible to speak of God's judgment on those who reject him. That's the day of the Lord. God's judgment, a day to speak of God's judgment on those who reject him and those who deny him, those who ignore him. Sometimes it refers to a time of judgment that's already happened in the past, like in Joel chapter 2. And sometimes it refers to a time yet to come, a day yet to come. Sometimes it refers to a, a, a moment in time. Sometimes it refers to uh, an extended period of time. With respect to the Yet to come times, 
You find that in passages like Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 2, it's already happened, day of the Lord. Joel chapter 3, it's yet to come. We'll get there next week. Or Malachi 4 or Isaiah 13. And especially as the day of the Lord is used in the New Testament, it's yet to come. The day of God's judgment of those who reject him. And the ones that are yet to come are references to the return of Christ in the battle of Armageddon. That's the bottom line. The day of the Lord, used in a yet-to-come sense, refers to the return of Christ and the battle of Armageddon. Because the battle of Armageddon is the ultimate point at which God judges those who reject him. The descriptions I want to show you here are nearly identical as to what we find in the book of Revelation. And to see that, turn with me first of all, will you, in your own Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Four scriptures here that I want to show you have nearly identical descriptions regarding the day of the Lord and the battle of Armageddon. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. You'll find 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians about, oh, 80% of the way through your Bible. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 and 2 Timothy. If you get to Timothy, you've gone too far. It's just after some of the short epistles. Ephesians, Colossians. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 5. Speaking of Christ's return, Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, implying that he's told them these things. You have no need to have anything written to you. Fortunately for us, he repeats it. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, suddenly, Suddenly, not necessarily unexpectedly as we'll see, but suddenly. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Note that word destruction. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Not unexpectedly, labor pains. Yeah, nine months expecting those things. Like I know. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. In other words, we're not in sin or shame. We're not blind or lost. So believers won't be caught off guard, only unbelievers. The point being, the day of the Lord, there in verse 2, the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, leads to sudden destruction. Destruction from which people cannot and will not escape. Which is the very result of the battle of Armageddon. When people will die, inescapably so, in droves. Their flesh plucked 
little by little from the birds, by the birds of the air. Leading to the conclusion that the battle of Armageddon is the very day of the Lord to which Paul refers. Sudden, inescapable destruction. And then there's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just flip a page or two over. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 8. Another reference to this often used phrase, day of the Lord in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Don't be shaken to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Don't be alarmed if somebody tells you that it's already happened. And don't believe it if somebody whispers in your ear or you have that thought. Don't believe it. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, that's the Antichrist, the beast. That, that day will not come unless the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, the church, proclaiming himself to be God. Just like we saw back in Revelation 13. We talked about all of these things in these first four verses here of 2 Thessalonians 2 when we studied Revelation 13. And the events of verses 3 and 4, right here, are the great tribulation. The great tribulation, as Paul describes them, including great rebellion, great lawlessness, and the arrival of the great deceiver, the son of destruction, the antichrist, the beast. Those things happen first, before the day of the Lord. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Probably referring to righteousness. Righteousness restrains the Antichrist. Righteousness embodied by good laws and good leaders. Good laws and good governments. One of the reasons that we can't ignore our civic duty to be involved in the affairs of of government these days because it plays a part in restraining the coming of the Antichrist. And you thought voting was important already. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness, after saying, you know what is restraining him, this man of lawlessness, so that he'll be revealed in his time and not before, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's being restrained, but it's already on the rise. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, probably referring to those who embody the righteousness, the nations and leaders that the Antichrist eventually overthrows and subdues in the Great Tribulation. When they're out of the way, 
When those leaders and good governments and good laws, when they're out of the way, righteousness is diminished and lawlessness increased. You can already see it. You can already see the birth pains of it happening. Verse 8. And then, and this is the point, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's the day of the Lord Paul is talking about in verse 2. Verse 8 is the day of the Lord that he references in verse 2. The day when the lawless one will be revealed, stretch of time in this instance, the end of the great tribulation, back half of it, the lawlessness will be, lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will eventually come. He will kill him with the breath of his mouth and he'll bring, to nothing, bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's the day of the Lord. The coming of Christ and the defeat of the Antichrist. Just like we see in Revelation 19 in the battle of Armageddon when Jesus throws the Antichrist into the lake of fire a form of eternal death. In fact, it's referred to as the second death in Revelation 20, we'll see. A form of eternal death and punishment, just like Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. The point being, the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 2 refers to the return of Christ and the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. They're one and the same. They're one and the same. If I could somehow connect those scriptures by a string in my Bible, I would do it. I love those sorts of deals. But I have to let my little scribbles in the margins refer me to those things. And I trust you'll do the same. One and the same. Battle of Armageddon. Day of the Lord. And that's not even the half of it. It's, in the, it's an Old Testament label as well, first used by Amos around 760 B.C. First used by Amos, day of the Lord. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It's the third of four scriptures that I want you to see regarding this great day of the Lord. Amos 5, verse 18, referring to the day of the Lord, he says, It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion, just picture this, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. He's saying that the, the day of the Lord that's coming down the pipeline, he had no idea, Amos had no idea when. We have no idea when, but we certainly have a better idea than Amos did because so much time has passed. He says when it, when it comes, it's going to be like fleeing a lion that you meet on a trail only to run into a bear. Not good. Or, it's as if a man went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, you know, to find some relief, and a serpent bit him. It reminds me of the time when Becky and I, I think it was back in 2009, when we went to Papua New Guinea to meet with and spend some time, 10 days in fact, with one of our global partners. And he just decided to tell us about the time when they were sitting in their living room just, uh, I don't know, a few months earlier, and they saw a, a, a boa constrictor begin to go up the wall behind the cabinet. 
I'm like, dude, you could have waited until we left to tell me that story. That, that's like getting out of the heat of the jungle into the house where we would just lay underneath the, the sole ceiling fan that was powered by batteries, that was powered by solar cells. And that's like going into the house to get some relief only to have a snake there that bites you or coils around you or whatever you want. That's the day of the Lord. People are going to be looking for relief, going here and going there and trying as they might to avoid the difficulties of the last of the great tribulation and it's going to go from bad to worse for them. The day of the Lord is like going from bad to worse. The very thing we see in Revelation 18 and then 19 from the fall of Babylon, the sinful culture, to the overthrow of those behind it, the sinful armies. Bad to worse. It's the ultimate example, the Battle of Armageddon is, of what Amos metaphorically and somewhat faintly first describes. And so is Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. That's the last one I want to show you. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. It too is referring to the ultimate day of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon. Only in this case, contrary to Amos, it's described in great, great detail. And you see if it doesn't resonate and measure up to what we read in Revelation 19. The great day of the Lord is near, he says, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements, fortifications. I hope that this is ringing a bell with some of the other scriptures that we just looked at, like 1 Thessalonians 4 and the like, that the Lord will descend with a cry of command and the trumpet of God. Verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind Mankind, implying worldwide, which is one of the keys to seeing this as the ultimate day of the Lord and not just a temporal one back in Zephaniah's day. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Sounds a lot like the battle of Armageddon. Because it is. Same description. A worldwide day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, battle, confusion, bloodshed, and futility. Everything that we find in Revelation 19. The ultimate day of judgment. A real battle 
in real places that starts with the return of Christ. Make sure you're on the right side of that. When that day comes, when that awesome day of the Lord, in both senses of the word, awesome because he's returning and awesome because it's dreadful, make sure you're on the right side of things. Make sure you see Jesus rightly now. Out with the idols and in with him. In his fullness, in with him. Holding fast until he comes to watch him fight the battle of Armageddon on our behalf. Let's pray. God, sober us with these truths. Will you, Lord, sober us with these truths? Don't let us hear these and then just dismiss them and go on with our day and our week and our life. Wake us up, God, to the reality of your vengeance, the reality of your wrath, the reality of your judgment. Real, real in every detail. God, wake us up. And forgive us for making an idol of you, Lord. For only seeing you partially. Only embracing you partially. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to see you and follow you as you are. Ready for your return to fight on our behalf. Yours is the victory. Yours is the victory. When you make all the enemies run, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.